This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Today we have a theme going around books and reinvention. First, a renewed role for our libraries. And a retired lawyer and law school dean reinvents himself as the author of an acclaimed biography. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. More older Americans are living by themselves than ever before, and the shift presents issues on housing, health care, and personal finance. In 1960, just 13% of American households had a single occupant. But that figure is approaching 30% today, and the majority are women. According to the latest census, nearly 26 million Americans 50 or older now live alone, up from 15 million in 2000. People 50-plus today are more likely than earlier generations to be divorced, separated, or never married. But research shows that people aging alone experience worse physical and mental health outcomes and shorter lifespans. Growing numbers of older Americans are dying from drug overdoses and alcohol abuse. Fatal drug overdoses have tripled to 5,000, and over 11,000 have died due to alcohol. And these deaths are rising faster among men, although white women over 75 have the highest death rates from overdoses. The tragic takeaway from the new report by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control is stronger opioids, economic challenges, and the pandemic are all taking their toll. The baguette has been awarded special protected status. The long, crusty loaf, a delicious staple of French life, is now officially recognized on UNESCO's cultural heritage list as an integral part of human culture. It joins Neapolitan pizza, kimchi, Belgian beer, Mediterranean diet, and Arabic coffee on the protected list. The agency says this designation pays tribute to tradition, craftsmanship, and ensures the artisanal way of baking is passed on to the next generation. Note to the keepers of the list, I think the bagel needs similar protection. A new documentary out next month offers a behind-the-scenes look with outgoing U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Shot and edited by Pelosi's daughter, it's a glimpse into the life and groundbreaking political career of the 82-year-old politician. It also includes footage shot during the January 6th insurrection as Pelosi helped direct the government's response to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The documentary will chart Pelosi's career dating back to her election to Congress in 1987 and her ascension to House Speaker in 2007 when she became the first woman to lead the chamber. 
A woman who was kidnapped as a toddler in 1971 has been reunited with her family in Fort Worth, Texas. Melissa Highsmith was 22 months old when she was abducted by a purported babysitter. Her family says she lived in Fort Worth most of her life as Melanie Brown. She didn't know she was kidnapped until her father submitted DNA to 23andMe and learned that he was related to Brown's children. Police are conducting official DNA tests to confirm her identity. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Zoomers will remember the time when you had to go to the library to get books, and you had to search for them using a card catalog. Today, our libraries are used more as social centers to do things like seeking protection from harsh weather and finding jobs online. I spoke to Vickery Bowles, the city librarian at Toronto Public Libraries. Witchwood is a, is a Carnegie Library. It was built in, uh, in, and opened in 1916. And so it needed uh, a renovation, but it also needed more space. And so the hope and what we I think we've been able to achieve is to renovate this, this space for a modern public library. And in addition to that, add the square footage. So we've more than doubled the square footage of the library, and we've been able to reimagine the spaces for adults and kids and teens, and, and we have a seniors area too. And that's allowed us to really update the library for a 21st century public library. I hate to date myself, but <laughs> certainly when I started going to libraries and even through universities, there were places with big card catalogs And lots and lots of books in stacks and librarians were there to help you if you needed help and also to stamp it or whatever when you took a book out. So what is a modern library in the 21st century? Well, I hate to tell you, but the card catalog is gone. <laughs> At Witchwood, we have about 35, a book collection of about 35,000 items, which is a, a good-sized collection. Um, but we also have computers for adults, teens, children. We have a kid stop for children. We have a, a programming and learning area where you can learn how to use different features of a, uh, on um, software on a computer. So there's there are so many other ways that you can use the library. Toronto has the most extensive library system in North America, is that right? Yes. We have 100 branches. We have more branches uh, than um, at any other library system in North America, and our, our use is very high. Uh, in fact, in uh, our, the circulation or the borrowing of e-books and e-audiobooks on Overdrive is we have the highest borrowing in the whole world on Overdrive uh, of any city in the world. You mentioned these other programs. So what is the role of the library in the community and who are you reaching out to serve? We serve everyone. And one of the great features of a public library is we welcome everyone into our branches without judgment. Every day when our doors open, uh, we see a whole host of people from all walks of life, all age groups, all cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds come into our libraries and use them in all sorts of different ways. So the, the core of libraries we are, respond to what communities need, and we are community hubs. 
One thing I, I always like to talk about is that, you know, some people come to the library to work together with others, and then other people come to the library just to be alone together. And that is the value of having accessible, welcoming public space where you can just walk into a library, pick up a magazine or a book or a newspaper, sit at a computer, and you can just work away, read away, do whatever you want at the library, uh, and be part of your community uh, by just being in this public space. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I would like to encourage people, if you don't have a library card in Toronto or elsewhere, go to your local library, get a library card. You can actually get a library card online, too, if, in most library systems. Get a library card and, uh, and take a visit to your local library. I think you'd be surprised at what you might find there if you haven't been there recently. Thank you so much, Vickery Bowles. Thank you. That was Vickery Bowles, City Librarian at Toronto Public Libraries. I'm Libby Zimmer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how and why retired lawyer Tim Christian became a successful author with a groundbreaking new biography of Ernest Hemingway's fourth wife. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. Christian was a prominent lawyer and dean of the law school at the University of Alberta throughout his career. It's not that unusual for people to write books in retirement, but the level of success on his first foray into biography is remarkable. We talked about his transition and Hemingway's widow, his groundbreaking book on Mary Welsh, Hemingway's fourth wife. It was a journey and a very enjoyable one, I have to say. You know, I did a lot of legal writing during my time, but I also wrote short stories. And I was anxious when I sort of stepped down from my very active legal practice, which I must say, I did enjoy a great deal. But I wanted to write. Uh, I wrote a few pieces and then I wanted to write something longer. I've always loved Hemingway. I always wanted to know about the connection between his life and his art. Uh, I read A Movable Feast when I was a young man, and I realized that Mary, uh, his uh, fourth wife, had actually published that book, and her editorial hand was heavier than she admitted at the time. She was a celebrated war correspondent during the Second World War at a time where there weren't a lot of women doing that. No, there absolutely. There were very few women, and she was the first woman to be accredited to the British Army uh, and then was accredited to the American Army and was the first woman writing on foreign affairs for Time magazine. She was a truly remarkable person. She was a great writer. And when you read her stories from that time, you find a person who takes the side of the underdog, who talks about the pensioners, the widows, the poor, the oppressed. And of course, she becomes a dedicated anti-fascist. She had this fabulous life. In London, I mean, she was married, but uh, had all these affairs. And I think, how did she describe it as, you know, a, a heaven for single women? Or She said that wartime London was a garden of Eden for single women. <laughs> or not so single women. Yeah. 
Yeah, with serpents hanging from every tree and street lamp. And uh, she quite candidly says that these dalliances provided a break from the looming, shadowy sense of mortality. And she had affairs with several men, with the head of military intelligence, and most significantly with Erwin Shaw, the young uh, writer struggling to be heard, who in fact, had already been quite successful in the States. He was only 30 years old. She described Erwin Shaw as the best lay in Europe. He talked of his admiration for Hemingway and said that he'd read all of Hemingway and many of his books several times over, trying to understand how he set scenes, how he used dialogue. Hemingway was writing for Collier's. And she was with Erwin Shaw when she met Hemingway, right? That's correct. Unknown to Mary, uh, Ernest was seated in the White Tower restaurant in London when she and Erwin Shaw walked in uh, to uh, attend a regularly scheduled Friday lunch club. Hemingway was there. He looked her over. He was immediately taken with her. He stood up, came over to her table and said, hey, Shaw, who's your friend? (laughs) And Erwin Shaw introduced him. Uh, He became almost immediately smitten with her. She, however, was not that impressed. Of course, she found his celebrity impressive. He was one of the best known writers in the world at that time. But as a man, she was not that taken with him. And Ernest had to work quite hard to persuade her that she should hook her wagon to his. And he did persuade her. After a while, it kind of turned. It did. I mean, right from the very beginning, she knew that this man was trouble, especially when he was uh, when he was drinking. He he uh, had an uncontrollable temper uh, and he was cruel and vicious to her. She knew that. But I, I think she believed that she could change him. He was cruel to her. But every time uh, he was, he would later come and apologize He would prostrate himself. He would beg her forgiveness. He would shower her with gifts, with jewelry, with minks, with cash, with trips. And she, I think, believed in the underlying strength of their relationship. She, of course, thanked him and forgave him for all of the sins of the past for having saved her life. But she also agreed to give up her own career and follow him to Cuba and and kind of be his handmaiden, which I find baffling. Yes, uh, she did. I, I, I would quibble with the word handmaiden because I think that she was always a very strong person. And if you read their correspondence, you can see that she was actually vital to his art. She, I think, underplayed her role in all of this. She did. She played her. She played a part in the family enterprise. The family enterprise was Hemingway, the great artist. And in many propaganda pieces she wrote for popular magazines, she talked about Ernest's life and she she didn't talk about her own role. It's really only after Ernest is dead uh, and she of course, survives him for 25 years and, and creates his literary legacy that that she begins to talk about her own role uh, in in the art. She lied about the fact that he committed suicide. She did. For five days, all of the newspapers in the United States printed stories about the tragic accident which occurred when Ernest was cleaning his gun uh, in preparation for a hunting trip. Uh, 
but it wasn't true. I was so lucky to discover in the archives of the Ketchum Community Library an interview with the journalist who broke the story four days after Ernest's death. Emmett Watson said he had learned beyond a reasonable doubt that the cause of death was suicide. In this this interview I discovered, uh, a professor of journalism uh, interviewed Emmett Watson some 30 years after the death, and Emmett Watson told the story of how he talked to the sheriff, and the sheriff described how Ernest put the two barrels, used his, he used his finger and a thumb to, to illustrate how it happened. Uh, but this story was buried, and it was sitting there in the, in the archives of the Ketchum Community Library. The word is, these days in books, to be successful with a book, you have to be known. You have to have a name and a following. And You've had this and, you know, book tours and publishers spending money to promote your book generally, unless you're a big name or a thing of the past. And here you are uh, coming out of nowhere in terms of literary biography. And you've had this huge success. I mean, congratulations. But how did that come about? I think it's true that you have to be a big name to have a successful book. I think that is true. So, yeah, you know, it's and I am not. I'm just a little guy in North Sandwich. Well, writing, okay. Writing but. my book. Uh, so it was a big surprise to me that it was as well received as it has been. And of course, um, you know, I, I think these things just can't be predicted. And indeed, I understand that's why they call the publisher Random House, Random House. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. it's totally random. <laughs> uh, there you go. Tim Christian, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. It's been a real pleasure. That was Tim Christian, author of Hemingway's Widow. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.